If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community power podcast, we cannot keep our episodes going and alive without more direct support from our listeners. And in this critical time, independent media shining a light on often sidelined perspectives and issues is more important than ever. So if you're learning from us and are moved by our conversations, you can reciprocate a gift of any amount at greendreamer.com support. There's a lot of evidence the world has massively sped up, right? Our experience of life has hugely sped up. And um, we talk faster than people did in the past. We walk faster than we did in the past. The experience of life is going much, much faster. And there's loads of evidence that when things speed up, your attention gets worse. You can, for example, the studies of speed readers. You can train anyone to speed read, right? Pretty, any literate person can be trained to speed read, or certainly to read much faster than they currently do. But what they find is even with professional speed readers, it always comes at a cost. And the cost is you remember less, you are drawn to much more shallow and simplistic messages, and you just absorb less of what you do. There's just a speed beyond which we cannot go if we want to engage properly with things that are happening. And I would argue we're basically all kind of speed reading life now, right? We're, we're living at a pace that makes deep thought impossible. Today, we are speaking with writer and journalist Johan Hari, who's written for The New York Times, The Guardian, and other newspapers. His TED Talks and now this viral video have been viewed almost 100 million times, and his work has been praised by a broad range of people from Oprah Winfrey to Noam Chomsky to Joe Rogan. He was the executive producer of the Oscar-nominated film The United States vs. Billie Holiday and of a forthcoming eight-part TV series starring Samuel L. Jackson. Our conversation today centers on his book Stolen Focus, and we begin by exploring the limitations of what is often taught through the world of self-help in terms of reclaiming our capacities for attention. I could feel that with each year that passed, things that require deep focus that are really deep to my sense of self, like reading a book, having long conversations, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? Like I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I noticed this seemed to be happening to everyone around me, particularly the young people in my life who I really love. 
a lot of whom seem to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, where nothing still or serious could touch them. And so I, started, I decided to use my training in the, in the social sciences at Cambridge University to really dig deeply into this. And I was quite shocked even early on by some of the, the evidence on this. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven, there's now 100 children who are identified with those problems today. The average American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. So I want to figure out, well, what's what's happening to us, right? Why is this happening? So I ended up going on this really big journey all over the world from Moscow to Montreal, to Miami, to Melbourne, not just to cities that begin with the letter M. I don't know why I became so alliterative there. And and I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts in the world about attention and focus. And I learned that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been hugely supercharged in recent years. If you're struggling to focus and pay attention, you're not imagining it. It's not a flaw in you. This is a big structural problem that is happening and requires systemic solutions alongside individual solutions. And the most important thing to understand is your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you. Mm. I really found your book and everything that you share really relatable because I used to be able to read books pretty easily from front to back. Mm. And I found that I haven't been able to do that. So I mm. I am curious to learn about why and how I might be able to reclaim this. And from what your work has inspired me to think about, it feels like the loss of capacity for attention really starts a vicious cycle that ends up negatively affecting our overall well-being. So how exactly might this play out for a person whose attention is being compromised just by the environments that we exist in, largely to no fault of our own, leading to impacts that then show up in our personal lives and for our well-being? Yeah, I think you've I think you've gone really to the heart of it, right, Kamea, which is, I would just say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's learning to play the guitar, being a good parent, writing a screenplay, whatever it might be. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of focus and attention, sustained, deep focus. And when attention and focus break down, your ability to solve your problems breaks down your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. This, by the way, is happening to us not just as individuals, but as a society, as anyone who's seen the news in the last decade can see. And I think what happens is, you know, there's someone who really helped me to think about this, a guy called Dr. James Williams, who had been at the heart of Google, part of the machinery that is so degrading our attention. And he was so uncomfortable with what he was doing. One day he spoke at a tech conference to the kind of people who were designing the apps that obsess many people listening, many of our kids. And he said to them, if there's anyone here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, put up your hand now. And nobody put up their hand. And James quit and he became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world and does incredible work on this. And he argued that actually there's three kinds of attention. And I think when you think about them, it really helps us to think about the answer to your question, Khmer, which is so said the first kind of attention is what we call your spotlight. And this is most of us when we think about attention problems, this is the kind of attention problem we think about. So your spotlight is your ability to narrow your focus down on an immediate task. So 
I want to go to the fridge and get a Diet Coke. I want to read the chapter of this book. I want to listen to finish listening to this podcast, right? That's the kind of spotlight focus. It's your ability to do an immediate short-term task. And we can all feel that that's being disrupted, right? Interrupted, mm-hmm. we can talk about the ways. The next level of focus is what Dr. Williams calls your starlight, which is more like medium to long-term goals. It's not, I want to read a chapter of this book, but I want to write a book, or I want to set up a business, or I want to be a good parent, right? So these are more medium-term goals, longer-term goals that are being hugely interrupted as well, as we can all see. By the way, he calls that your starlight, because when you're lost in the desert, you look to the stars to figure out what direction you're traveling in. Mm -hmm. The third level is what he calls your daylight. And your daylight is how you even know what your goals are in the first place. How do you know what it means to be a good parent? How do you know you want to set up a business? How do you know you want to lead this campaign group? And it's called daylight because you could only really see clearly, you can see a room most clearly when it is flooded with daylight. I would argue there's a fourth layer of attention. I know when I put this to him, Dr. Williams agreed, which, which I would call our stadium lights, which is our ability to see each other, right? When attention breaks down, we also find it increasingly difficult to see and understand each other. And I think to just be present with other people in a society. And I think that you, we can see that that's clearly being disrupted as well. So I think all of these four levels of attention are being disrupted. And you can see how I really like this metaphor of attention as a light that Dr. Williams talks about, because when your attention breaks down, it feels like you're stumbling in the dark, right? You're in this sort of fragmented environment you can't really get to grips with. And so, yeah, you can see, I think, from that, how losing those four forms of light leads to a profoundly diminished life. Yeah, I really resonate with what you name stadium light, because Mm. in addition to losing our capacities to be present with each other and be sensitive to the needs of one another. This also applies, especially when we're talking about our ecological crises and our lack of abilities to tune in with our bioregional landscapes to understand their needs and what they need for our collective healing. So I think there's that layer to it as well beyond the human community. That's so that's so fascinating, and because as you know, I talk and think a lot about the climate crisis in the book, and. I think you're absolutely right. It's a unique disaster that we are losing our most important human faculty, our attention, at the moment of the greatest challenge in the history of our species, right? And I I think of the attention crisis and the climate crisis as profoundly interconnected in all sorts of ways. Actually, one of the things I learned is the forces that are destroying the ecosystem, unrestrained capitalism, are also playing a huge role in the destruction of our attention. And that's obviously a huge thing. But even more than that, to use another analogy from Dr. Williams, who I'm talking about on this interview, he's such a great person. He said, you know, imagine you're driving somewhere and someone throws a huge bucket of mud over your windshield. It doesn't matter what you've got to do whenever you get to your destination. The first thing you've got to do is clean your windshield, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to go anywhere. And in a way, I think it's a really good metaphor for the attention crisis. If We've got to urgently solve the climate crisis, right? We know what the solutions are. We've got to urgently get to them. But if we can't pay attention to anything, or if our attention is being diverted into forms of madness, think about Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right president of Brazil, who's currently accelerating the destruction of the Amazon rainforest, which will have 
incalculable and horrific consequences for everyone listening and for indeed for the whole world and all humans who come after us. When Jair Bolsonaro won the election that night, his supporters at his election rally chanted Facebook, 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 because they knew that Facebook's algorithms had profoundly promoted Jair Bolsonaro and other far-right leaders. We now know Facebook's own leaked internal research revealed that as well. I'm sure we can go more into why that's happening. Um, That Bolsonaro was a product of the destruction of our collective attention, uh, deliberate and systematic destruction of our collective attention. And there's there's another way in which I think the attention crisis and the climate crisis are interconnected. And it might be the one that most worries me, which is, and I don't think this is actually right, but it's something I worry about. Mm. So we know, well, this bit is right. We know with the climate, and all of your listeners know better than I do, as the ecosystem begins to unravel and the planet heats, we can pass tipping points beyond which it is impossible to go back. So an example would be, We've caused so much heating that there are now heat waves in Siberia every year. The the phrase Siberian heat wave is not one I ever thought I'd hear. And there's a huge amount of methane stored in the Arctic tundra in Siberia. And that methane is now being released. And methane is one of the most potent gases for causing accelerating global warming. So that's a tipping point where if we don't deal with that, we can get runaway global warming. My worry is when I'm pessimistic and I'm ultimately not pessimistic about attention or indeed the climate, if we do the right things is that we could pass a tipping point with attention because to get our attention back requires a certain amount of attention. We have to be able to focus enough to understand the problem and band together to take on the forces that are so degrading our focus and attention. And sometimes I think, God, what if we've got to the point where we're so degraded that we can't do that? then we're in trouble. I don't think we've crossed that point yet. And we should certainly not assume we have because we there's a chance we can fight and win it. I think a very good chance. But I do think, yeah, that, that's another parallel that, that comes to mind. Does that does that ring true to you, Kamaya? I share similar concerns, I would say. And our past guest, Dr. Bio Akomlafe, names this crisis in form and invites us to really slow down in the face of urgency so that mm-hmm. the solutions we come up with don't end up replicating the problems in form. I think I do have the worry that our collective consciousness has altered to such an extent through how our capacities for attention have been downgraded and eroded in a way such that our collective capacities to deal with complex and large-scale crises have been compromised as a result, so that even at our best attempts to address the problems, we are limited by our declining capacities for attention and abilities to tune in deeply. That That's so interesting because it makes me think of, as you say that, I'm just thinking about another parallel between the climate crisis and the attention crisis, which is about a refusal to understand natural limits. So think about something as basic as sleep, right? Human beings need, this is the most banal thing a human person could ever say, humans need to sleep, right? Mm-hmm. Sleep is absolutely essential. It's essential for all sorts of reasons. One reason is that when you don't sleep, you can't pay attention. I interviewed some of the leading experts on sleep in the world. We sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. In fact, children sleep 85 minutes less than they did a century ago. And obviously, a lot of the book is about why our children can't focus. 
Now, sleep is an obvious human limitation, right? Every single person experiencing, listening to this podcast has known that since they were a baby, right? You think about how we could deny even something so basic as one of our own most fundamental needs, right? If you stay awake for 19 hours, your attention deteriorates as much as if you were legally drunk, right? When you don't sleep, and this is really interesting because Professor Roxanne Prichard, a wonderful person at the University of Minneapolis, professor of psychology, explained to me, you know, one of the reasons why this is so important is when you're sleeping, we think of sleep as a passive process, right? Sleep is a deeply active process. When you're sleeping, your brain is healing itself. It's repairing. So for example, throughout the day when you're awake, uh, something called metabolic waste builds up in your brain, what Professor Prichard calls brain cell poop. And when you sleep, a watery fluid rinses through your brain, your cerebral spinal fluid channels open up, and it takes that metabolic waste, that brain cell poop out of your brain, down into your into your liver, and then obviously out of your body. If you don't sleep, your brain doesn't get to do that if you don't sleep properly. So you know that kind of hungover, clogged up feeling you get when you're tired? Mm. That's not a metaphor. Your brain is literally clogged up, right? This is why people who don't sleep properly are more likely to get dementia because they're more likely to develop plaques and tangles in their brain. And there's lots of other causes that I go through in the book. But what an incredible thing that we've created a society that would deny an incredibly basic natural human need that all humans know about, right? And I think there's a real link with the climate crisis because there are limits to what we can do to the planet and the climate before it it goes to shit, right? And just like we can't acknowledge our body's natural limits, we can't acknowledge the earth's natural limits. We've created a culture where even the idea of limits seems like an affront to us, right? It's almost a kind of magical thinking. And I remember, and this is, you know, and obviously this is partly a product of unrestrained capitalism. Dr. Charles Seisler, who's probably the leading sleep expert in the world, he's at Harvard Medical School, where I interviewed him, said to me, you know, we, we need to sleep eight hours a night, but actually 40% of Americans are chronically sleep deprived. Only 15% of us wake up feeling refreshed. And he said to me, if we started to get the amount of sleep we need, that would cause a huge economic crisis because there would be an, an hour or two hours a day less when people were not buying shit, when we're not consuming products, right? And I thought, wow, what a crazy way of thinking. He's right, but what a crazy indictment of our economic system that if we lived within our natural physical limits, it would cause an economic crisis. Now, that's also true of the climate crisis, right? Now, we have to cause that economic crisis because, in fact, we should transition in a way it doesn't cause an economic crisis. And your listeners don't need me to explain that. Like, we can do that. But we have to make that transition. But remaining, remaining within the logic of the existing system leads to catastrophe. We have to break with the logic of the existing system. That's true for our attention. That's true for the climate. That's true for a huge number of factors. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of quite tight underlying forces that are very similar here. Also, just that our we are part of the earth, so our well-being <laughs> it is a part of the planet's well-being, and so it's absolutely mm. true that you know we all need to rest more and sleep more, which means we need to produce and consume less. And the same things are true for the earth as well. We have to extract less and produce less of the stuff that we don't need, and consume less and use less energy as well. So. It's definitely intricately linked and does highlight the incompatibility of the current economy, which is predicated on endless economic growth and 
mm-hmm. what we might better understand as the more holistic measurements of our collective well-being. And sleep, mm-hmm. of course, definitely highlights this systemic angle, given that people are increasingly forced to work more for less pay as our economic disparities continue to widen. And so it was really resonant for me when you talked about how REM sleep, which is dreaming in the most intense stage, tends to happen in the seventh or eighth hour of sleep. And so you ask, what does it mean when we've become a society where we literally don't give ourselves enough time to dream, end quote. Mm. I really love that and would love if you could elaborate on the role of dreaming and what you think this has done to our abilities to be imaginative in the ways that perhaps we address these larger than life challenges that we're facing individually and collectively. This totally fascinated me. Remind me to come back to economic growth, which you mentioned a minute, because I think this is really fascinating and important as well. But I went to interview Professor Tora Nielsen, who runs the Dream Lab at the University of Montreal. I always thought that was a weirdly poetic name for a scientific lab. And he studies dreaming. And again, there's a lot of evidence that dreams play a really important function in the psychology of human beings. There was one study, kind of small, it's a small study. We want to handle its results with caution. But they found that, I remember rightly, they found that middle-aged women who'd gone through a divorce, who dreamed about their divorce, were more likely to psychologically recover from the divorce than people who didn't dream about the divorce. Dreaming is a time when we process stressful things without being flooded with with stress hormones. All sorts of things happen in dreams. And like you say, REM sleep, where dreaming happens, where most dreaming happens, tends to occur quite late in the sleep cycle. And a lot of us don't get to that late stage, right? So we're, we're at this psychologically depleted level. Just to say about economic growth, because I'm really, I'm so excited to do an interview where I get to talk about this, because I think it's one of the most important points in the book, and not many people want to talk about it. But, mm. and actually, it's the one of the points in the book I, I've got the most pushback on from people who are sort of find the idea of challenging systems confusing and alienating. Mm. Um, we love that here, is, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so there's a lot of evidence the world has massively sped up, right? Our experience of life has hugely sped up. Um, we talk faster than people did in the past. We walk faster than we did in the past. The experience of life is going much, much faster. And there's loads of evidence that when things speed up, your attention gets worse. You can, for example, the studies of speed readers, you can train anyone to speed read, right? Pretty, any literate person can be trained to speed read or certainly to read much faster than they currently do. But what they find is even with professional speed readers, it always comes at a cost. And the cost is you remember less, you are drawn to much more shallow and simplistic messages, and you just absorb less of what you do. There's just a speed beyond which we cannot go if we want to engage properly with things that are happening. And I would argue we're basically all kind of speed reading life now, right? We're, we're living at a pace that makes deep thought impossible. And there's interesting research, I can explain why, but without going into the details, there's this fascinating research by Professor Suna Lehman at the Technical University of Denmark in Copenhagen, where I interviewed him, that our collective attention span has been shrinking significantly as far back as the 1880s. So every decade since the 1880s, our collective attention span has got worse. And I can explain how we know that if you want, but take that as given for a second. I want to understand, well, this is really interesting because very often when we think about this, we think about, you know, just the internet or whatever, right? And of course, there are key aspects of how the internet works that are designed to invade and hack our attention and we can fix them. They don't, the internet doesn't have to work that way. 
But I was trying to think, well, that obviously the internet didn't exist in the 1880s. It didn't exist when I was 18, right? That w- w- Or not in any way that any ordinary person used. What's going on here? And there's many factors. But there was a person, a man named Professor Thomas Hilland Erickson, who's in Norway, one of Norway's leading, if arguably Norway's leading social scientists. He, he's done really interesting. You should totally have him on your show, by the way. He's a really fascinating person. And he said to me that one of the factors here is economic growth, a system built around economic growth. So essentially, a system built around economic growth can deliver growth in one of two ways. It can discover a genuinely new market. And obviously, that happens sometimes. You can invent something that didn't exist before, and it's a new market. Or, and this is much more common, you can get people in an existing market to consume more and more. So think about something as simple as, if I can get you to watch TV and at the same time tweet about what you're watching, I have doubled the amount of advertising you're exposed to and therefore doubled the revenue stream, right? In terms of economic growth, that's a great victory, right? So getting the world to speed up means we consume more, which is good for growth, but bad for your attention. Also, as all your listeners know and don't need me to tell them, bad for the ecosystem, catastrophic for the ecosystem. So what a large part of what I argue in the book is just like we need desperately a movement to take on the underlying causes of the climate crisis, we need a movement, an attention movement. I sort of slightly jokingly in the book said it should be called an attention rebellion to deal with the causes, the deep systemic structural factors that are undermining our ability to focus and pay attention. And I think this requires a shift in consciousness. There are things we can do as isolated individuals. I talk about them in the book. I'm passionately in favor of them. There are dozens of them. I recommend them to everyone. But I want to be honest with people, that will only get you so far. Because we're living in, Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the world said to me that we need to ask if we're now living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment that's systematically undermining the ability of almost everyone to pay attention. And if that's the case, and I believe the evidence is strong that that is the case, just tweaking our individual behavior will will help, right? It's good. I'm strongly in favor of it, but it's not going to solve the problem right? To solve the problem, we have to take on the forces that are doing this to us. And that requires a big shift in psychology. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies, at least in theory, and we own our own minds. And we can take them back if we want to, but we have to understand these 12 factors that have done this to us, and we have to collectively take them on. In terms of the internet, of course, someone who you've been connected with for a while is Tristan Harris, who is a Mm -hmm. former Google engineer who appeared in the documentary, The Social Dilemma. And he essentially has been sitting with a difficult question of the ethics of creating large-scale surveillance technologies that are, as he said, destroying our common silence and ability to think. And from his insider experience and you know reflections, he also shared that he believes what we're seeing is the collective downgrading of humans and the upgrading of machines. And so overall, we're essentially becoming less rational, less intelligent, and less focused. This all really sparked me to think about how we tend to individualize the question of ethics and Mm. let off the hook these larger than life forces in our society that are shaping us at such massive scales that we might not even recognize because we're so immersed within it that we may fail to see ourselves as products of that system. 
So I'm curious about how your views on the ethics of technology have evolved or changed as you've gone deeper into this work and how it might push back against this binary of pro-tech and anti-tech. Oh, Kamea, you've asked so many important things there. And I, I really love the way you put that. And the I think this is the greatest kind of sickness of our culture is that we individualize everything, right? Every problem that comes along in American culture, we just think, well, this is a problem for you. I mean, I'm speaking to you from Las Vegas because I've been working working for a long time on a on a book about a series of crimes that have been happening here. And partly that's involved spending a lot of time with the people who live in the drainage tunnels beneath Vegas. And I can't tell you how many homeless people I know who say, I know I'm here because I screwed up. Right, I know because I did something wrong. You kind of want to go, yeah, not really, not really. No, I mean there are other societies where no one is living in a drainage tunnel, right? So I think you're right that even something as extreme as extreme poverty, which would not be tolerated in any European country, we individualize, right? It's funny. I had an epiphany about this, about this individual way of thinking about it. Very early in writing the book, I went to interview a, a brilliant scientist called Professor Roy Baumeister who's at the University of Queensland in Australia. And he's the leading expert in the world on willpower. He wrote a book called Willpower. He's been studying willpower for 30 years. If anyone listening, probably most people have heard of a famous experiment called the marshmallow test. If not, you can look it up. He invented that test, which is the main test of willpower. So go and see him. And I was still very much stuck in this, to be honest, quite an individualistic narrative myself. I thought there was something wrong with me, right? And I said to him, so I'm thinking of writing a book about attention interested in how your insights weigh on attention. And he said something like, the exact words are in the book. It's interesting you ask about that because I've noticed my own attention's got much worse. I play video games all the time on my phone and I sit there talking and I'm sitting opposite him and I'm like, wait, didn't you write a book called Willpower? Aren't you the leading expert on willpower in the world? And you're sitting here telling me you fucking play Candy Crush all day. Like, it was a really sobering moment. It reminded me of the moment at the end of that movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where you re- they realize everyone's been body snatched and they're all aliens, you know? So yeah, these individual solutions, there are things individuals can do. I'm in favor of them. Obviously, I talk about lots of them in the book, but you're totally right. This is not, you know, that, that can get you 10, 15, 20% of the way worth doing. But the other 80% is all this systemic stuff. And, and you're right, Tristan... I mean, I think Tristan is one of the great heroes of our time. And obviously, I've been interviewing him for years now, and I, I, I can't tell you how much I admire him. And Tristan, for people who don't know, Tristan worked at the heart of Google. And he was, he was on the, initially assigned to the Gmail team when they were developing Gmail. And for reasons we can discuss if you want, they were particularly trying to figure out how to get people to use Gmail more often, how to pick up their phones more frequently. And one day, Tristan was in the Googleplex. And one of his colleagues had an idea. His colleague was like, oh, I've thought of something. Why don't we make it so that every time someone receives a email, their phone vibrates, their iPhone vibrates a little bit. And everyone said, that's a good idea. Let's do it. And a week later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco and he just hears these vibrations everywhere, like, like a kind of dystopian bird song. And he thought, shit, we did that. That's us. And then he realized that was happening all over the world. In fact, a little while later, he calculated that had led to 10 billion interruptions to people's day 
every day. And we know that being interrupted profoundly damages attention. If you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted, according to Professor Michael Posner. But most of his research, most of us never get 23 minutes now. So we're constantly being degraded. And so Tristan quit. He was horrified by what they were doing. He tried to change inside the machinery. He discovered they were not interested in changing. I can explain why. And has become, I would argue, the leading dissident on this question and is doing hugely important work. And you're, I think you've gone to the heart of the ethical dilemma, which is what we've done is create a system in which a system, because of the current business model, I'm sure we'll dig into this more, the current business model of social media has created a system where the only way people in that machinery can succeed is by developing more effective ways of undermining people's ability to focus and pay attention. They make more money the more they do that, and they lose money when they don't do it. So this all this machinery is designed to do that, right? That's its purpose. Just like KFC, all the head of KFC cares about is, are you going to eat fried chicken today? And specifically KFC fried chicken, right? That's it. That's all he cares about. All of the structure and machinery of these companies cares about is how often did you pick up your phone? How long did you scroll through our apps, right? That's it. So Tristan could, at an individual level, persuade people that this was really harmful. They hate it, right? They hate it themselves. They're all being hijacked by their own creations. They don't let their kids have iPads. They send their kids to Montessori schools. They go to yoga and meditation classes, right? But in persuading them individually, I mean, you could persuade them individually to leave the company and cease to be part of this immoral system, which is certainly worth doing. But the primary way we have to exert moral force is by changing this system itself, right? By getting rid of those incentives. And obviously, Tristan has been at the heart figuring out how we can do that. But you're absolutely right. Locating the moral failing in the individual who is being hacked and invaded rather than in the system that is hacking and invading them, seems to me madness. Of course, that's how they want us to think about it, right? That's Why do they give you a screen time option? They want you to feel like shit when you see that it's, you spent six hours on the phone that day, right? Because then you blame yourself. You don't blame Facebook. You don't blame TikTok. You don't blame Google. You blame yourself. They want to transfer. So much of our societies are about, and Noam Chomsky obviously writes brilliantly about this, is about transferring anger downwards, right? People are angry at the homeless, not at tax-dodging billionaires, right? Even though the homeless have done nothing to you and the five heirs of the, to the Walmart fortune own more than the bottom 100 million Americans and their heirs, they didn't even do anything for it, right? But we're constantly encouraged. This is a society where most people are angry at the homeless and no one is angry at the five heirs to the Walmart fortune, right? Or very few people. So we're constantly encouraged to transfer our anger downwards on every issue. And on attention that's happening, we're encouraged to blame ourselves, you know, criticize ourselves. Ah, what's wrong? Get into a kind of masochistic self-recrimination. And I used to feel this happen myself. And it's a real victory of neoliberalism. You know, when I was a child, famously, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals in our families. And that has seeped so deep into the bones of the culture. I think I was saying as big as, you know, 60% of Americans going into the pandemic had less than $500 in savings through no fault of their own. That money was transferred to the rich. 
And here's a real no shit Sherlock insight for everyone. Being financially insecure makes you much more likely to become depressed and anxious. But what did we do as a society? There was a collapse of the middle class, huge increase in wealth to the rich, huge increase in economic insecurity for the poor. And that made loads of people depressed. It's not the only factor that causes depression, of course. And what did we do? We told people, oh, it's just your brain is malfunctioning. There's something wrong with you, right? You can, you, you can see how we're constantly, constantly doing that. So I think you're right. This is one of the biggest problems in how the culture functions. Yeah, and I never want to oversimplify things, but mm. what I can sort of see is that we can certainly co-create the world as individuals, but the systems are also constantly shaping us and our capacities to do various things and even reshaping our desires and understandings of how we want to fill the real voids and yearnings that we have, which then shape what we end up co-creating. Mm. So in a past interview, for example, you raised this question of how we've created a culture where people even want to be in places like the metaverse, which for people who aren't aware is the virtual reality that Meta, formerly known as Facebook, is attempting to create. And so the question I have, and there's not going to be an easy answer, but if our collective consciousness has been altered to an extent where we've lost touch with what we need to feed our very human yearnings and desires, and so we're starting to feed these voids with misguided things, what do we do when we've been conditioned to value certain things that actually are not aligned with what is good for our well-being and that is life enriching and life enhancing so that even if we had a perfectly functioning and healthy democracy free of corporate interests and corrupt politics, we might still enthusiastically vote our ways and co-create a reality that is self-destructive. What comes up for you here? <laughs> so the thing I think of first, and I apologize in advance that I'm a man mansplaining this to you. I know you know this much better than I do. I think the tightest and best analogies with the feminist movement. So I think about my grandmothers who I loved deep as much as I've loved anyone and were amazing women. And um, my grandmothers were the age I am now in 1963. One of them was a working class woman living in what we call a housing project here in Scotland. And the other was a Swiss peasant woman living in a wooden hut on the side of a mountain. And when they were the age I am now, neither of them were allowed to have bank accounts in their own names because they were married women. It was legal for their husbands to rape them, as it was legal everywhere in the world for men to rape their wives. My Swiss grandmother wasn't even allowed to vote, right? And my grandmother's lives were profoundly disfigured by sexism, misogyny, male supremacy, right? They both left school when they were 13, even though their brothers got to go on to school longer because no one gave a shit about girls and knowing anything. My Swiss grandmother loved to paint and draw. They told her to shut the fuck up and get into the kitchen, right? But my grandmothers had a pre-feminist consciousness. They hated what had been done to them. They thought it was unfair, but they also thought, well, this is just the way the world is, right? They had no politicized consciousness about it. They never felt like this. They lamented it the way you might lament being washed away by a hurricane, right? Like, although actually a hurricane now is supercharged by global warming, but let's imagine in a pre-global warming age, they just saw it as just a force of nature, a terrible, lamentable force of nature that disfigured their lives. And then, of course, the generation of women, I mean, there were some women in their generation, but many more women in the generation after them said, no, this isn't just some innate truth about human existence. This is the product of a whole series of forces of power that we can challenge. It doesn't have to be this way, right? So the first stage of that was 
consciousness raising, right? Just saying it doesn't have to be this way. This isn't a fault in you. And of course, many women internalize those power structures. Betty Friedan writes about this brilliantly in The Feminine Mystique, which is, by the way, a book that completely holds up. It's It was actually one of the models I used for writing my book, Stolen Focus. It's such a great work of writing where she said to people, you know, so it's really interesting if you look at, we don't want to think about this now, but if you look at kind of the reactions to feminism, women, a lot of women organized against feminism. They said, well, I, I like my husband being the the superior one, the protector. You can see how they'd internalized a lot of these toxic ideas about male supremacy and, and felt very frightened by a threat to that system because that was the system in which they had been raised. And, and I think there's, there's, there's sort of all sorts of ways in which this parallels attention. So the first thing is we we need our consciousness raising, and it's what I'm trying to do with Stolen Focus, is say to people, stop blaming yourself. It's not your fault. This is a systemic and structural problem. And secondly, it doesn't have to be this way. So I think those are the kind of first steps. And then, of course, explain to people, look, there are these practical steps you can take. I'll give you an example of a practical step that I think everyone listening will just immediately get how this would improve the life of almost everyone in the United States. In France, in 2018, they were having a huge crisis of what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. And the French government, under pressure from labor unions, and they would never have done it if they hadn't been pressured by labor unions, set up a government inquiry to figure out, well, what the hell's going on? Why is everyone getting so burned out? And they discovered one of the key factors was that 35% of French workers felt they could never unplug, could never stop checking their phone or email because their boss could message them at any time of the day or night. And if they didn't answer, they'd be in trouble, right? I remember when I was a kid, the only people who were on call were doctors. And even doctors weren't on call all the time. Now we've gone to almost half the economy being on call all the time. And I can give those people all the lovely self-help lectures in the world about, you might want to sleep more. You want to switch tasks less. You know, that's not a a kind liberation to them. That's a, a taunt, right? That'd be like going up to a homeless person and saying, hey, buddy, you know what would make you feel much better? It'd be like it'd be if you went into that lovely restaurant there and had a nice steak. Have you considered that, right? It's not a liberating piece of advice. It goes, screw you, I can't do that, right? So the French government, again, I stress they would never have done this if it weren't for organized labor, introduced a very simple legal reform. It's called the right to disconnect. And it has two components. The first part says every worker has a right to have their work hours legally defined in their contract. And the second part says every worker has a legal right to not have to check their phone or answer their email or be contacted by their employer once those work hours are finished, unless they're being paid overtime, right? So I went to Paris, obviously before the plague, to talk to people about this. Just before I was there, Rent-A-Kill, the pest control company, was fined 70,000 euros for trying to get one of their workers to answer his email an hour after he left work, right? Now you can see how that's a collective change that we can all fight for, that frees people up to make these individual changes that can restore their attention. So there's a dense inter- interconnection between these two these two forms of protection, right? The individual and the collective. And sometimes it's framed as like, I almost don't even like framing it that way. I'm conscious I'm kind of trapped in this binary because sometimes people go, oh, there's this individual stuff that I can do. And then there's this collective stuff that some sort of weird ambient they can do. And I always want to say to people, no, there's no they, right? 
the collective stuff is only done if enough of us fight for it, right? But we've been taught this, this is a culture that tr- teaches us an incredible political passivity, right? We, we think collective struggles, is, you know, we, that famous line by, was it Maya Angelou? We are the people we've been waiting for, right? We've got to be the people we're waiting for. Yet at the moment, the temptations go, well, I'll do these little individual tweaks and we'll wait for some political messiah to come along and rescue us from the bigger forces. No, that will only happen if we have a movement to do it, right? Otherwise, and, and it's crucial for people to understand at the moment we're in a race. On the one hand, you've got all these 12 forces that are profoundly damaging our focus and attention, and they go way beyond tech. They include the food industry, lots of factors. And they are only going to become more invasive if we don't act, right? Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than the last 40. Think about how much more addictive TikTok is to your child than Facebook, right? On the other side of this race, there's got to be a movement of all of us saying, no, no, you don't get to do this to us. No, we don't tolerate this. No, we don't want a life where we only focus in time, where our life dissolves into a hailstorm of three minutes of switching, switching, switching. We don't want that. We want a life where we can think deeply, where our children can play outside. This is a big factor, stopping children playing outside, which is not just during COVID, but long before, has profoundly damaged their attention. We want a life where we can read books. We want a life where we can think deeply. We choose that life. We don't choose this life of constant speed, stress, and anxiety. No, we won't accept it. You don't get to do this to us. You don't get to do this to our children. If we have a movement doing that, I'm absolutely confident we can take on these forces. Human beings have taken on bigger forces than that. I'm gay. There was 2,000 years of burning, arresting, and, and physically destroying gay people. And in the space of a few generations, we've gone from that. It's not perfect now, but to gay marriage, incredible transformations. We can take on these forces. Think about my grandmother's lives, right? Sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, these are such big forces, we'll never be able to take them on. And I tell them about my grandmothers in 1963, and I don't for a minute want to underestimate how much further we've got to do, go in in terms of achieving liberation for women. But I think about my niece, Erin, who's 17. You know, like I mentioned, my grandmother loved to paint and draw, and they told her to shut up and get into the kitchen. My niece loves to paint and draw. When we discovered that, we started looking up art schools, right? Even the most crazy Republican wouldn't suggest that my niece's life should be sent back to what my grandmother's lives were, that she shouldn't be allowed to vote, that she shouldn't be allowed to have a bank account, that it should be legal for a man to rape her. No one says it. Maybe some deranged incel somewhere on the internet says it, but no one else says it, right? And that change happened because lots of women and some sympathetic men banded together and said, we're not taking this anymore. And when people say to me, the forces you're saying we have to take on are really powerful, I always say to them, you're right. They're not a tenth as powerful as men were in 1963, where my grandmothers were the age I am now. Men controlled every company, every country, every police force, every institution of power in the world. And they had ever since those institutions were created, with the exception of a few hereditary queens, right? We can take this on. We can win this fight. But if we don't win, the forces destroying our attention will win by default. Mm, There's certainly a lot of historic people's movements that we can learn from in terms of what it means to take collective action. And the last thing on technology I want to mention 
because you named this so explicitly, which is something I've been thinking about. And I don't, I don't know who else I'll get to talk about this with. So you brought up <laughs> examples of Twitter and Instagram and how you're thinking about the medium as the message and mm-hmm. what it means to buy into the game and master the game by playing by their rules. So I'd be curious to hear you expand on this further as in what messages and values might people implicitly be buying into just by choosing to communicate using these mediums that I believe at least have been set up to incentivize a culture of superficiality and reactivity. Mm, You know, as you know, I took three months totally off the internet when I was working on the book. I was amazed by how much my attention came back. But it was interesting because I thought a lot during that time about that famous thing that Marshall McLuhan said, the medium is the message. So I, I, I knew that phrase. I, don't, I didn't understand. I never understood it when I heard it. So I read Marshall McLuhan and he's obviously long dead. And, and what McLuhan, if I understand him correctly, was arguing is when a new technology comes along, he was talking about television. We think of it as like a pipe. Information goes in at one end and gets into our head at the other. But actually it's more like putting on a new set of goggles and seeing the world. You start to see the world is shaped like that technology. So think about television. Television taught us that the world should be really fast, that everything is happening at the same time. We, we see the world as looking like television now, all of us. Think about your childhood memories and you'll picture them as looking like a TV show, right? That's not how human memory worked before. And so he said that the medium hidden in the, what's the medium hidden in the message of television is that the world should be fast, that everything's happening very quickly. We can all think about messages hidden in the medium of television. So I started to think, obviously I was reading a lot of books when I was off, offline and I obviously wasn't looking at social media. And I started thinking, what is, the, what is the message implicit in the mediums of social media? Think about Twitter. It doesn't matter whether you're Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, or Bubba the Love Sponge. When you use Twitter, you're absorbing a certain set of implicit messages. The first is, the world should be described in 280 characters. That is a sensible way to describe the world. Secondly, that you should respond to things really quickly. What matters is how quickly you respond. And thirdly, what matters even more is whether people immediately agree with this very fast, very short thing you just said. And I I suddenly realized why I feel so bad on Twitter, even when I'm sort of winning and I'm doing well, I'm getting loads of retweets. I don't think those messages are true at all. I don't think many things can be usefully said in 280 characters. I think the world is complex. Maybe you're a Japanese haiku artist. I don't see that many of them on Twitter. Secondly, actually, if you're reacting really quickly, you're probably wrong. Most things that are worth saying require contemplation and depth. And thirdly, It absolutely does not matter whether people immediately agree with you. It's irrelevant. Everyone we, all of us admire, when they started articulating the truths they they spoke, most people disagreed with them, right? No one was retweeting Socrates or Martin Luther King, right? They were damning them. And then I thought about the messages implicit in the physical book, right? It doesn't matter what the specific book is, whether, you know, but if someone, and, and and I think the messages are, Firstly, slow down, right? If someone finds my book 100 years from now, it'll be saying the same thing that it's saying now, right? Secondly, it's said the message in the medium of the book is 
Think deeply about what it's like to be another person. Imagine the internal life of another human being. Really dedicate your time to that. And I realized, and this sounds maybe a bit pompous or grandiloquent, but I think those insights are morally true. I think they're really important. I think they matter. And so, yeah, I think that when you use Twitter, you're absorbing these toxic messages. Even if you're saying the right thing, fighting for the right causes, you know, this is why I treat Twitter like sort of like Chernobyl. I, I, I have an assistant I give, I, you know, the way the Russian government treated Chernobyl. I have an assistant that I give my tweets to do too. And I, I don't look at it because, and I should really, I'm being a bit hypocritical by not even, by not quitting and I probably will soon. So yeah, I, I think we need to take care what technologies we use because over time your consciousness will come to be shaped like those technologies. And I don't think there's any sane person who wants a mind that is shaped like Twitter. Yeah, that all just really struck a chord with me because I'm personally divesting my time away from, I use Instagram more, but I'm divesting Mm. from both Instagram and Twitter because I've been thinking for myself, what if the content I want to put out, I want to inspire people to slow down, to go deep, to take the time to sit with things and peel back the layers and meditate on it all and to not react. And that fundamentally will not be rewarded by these platforms that reward reactive engagement. So I'm thinking about what it means to orient myself towards intimate engagement, which Mm. just can't be measured by these quantifiable metrics used by platforms aiming to steal and maximize and rob attention. Mm. So these are things I'll continue to ponder, especially with all the new learnings I've gained from this conversation. And all of this leads me to the question, my last question, which brings back what we talked about earlier in terms of endless economic growth. Instead of using economic measures to define our societal well-being, like why don't we just use something like our capacities for attention and Mm. our capacities to show up deeply and presently for one another and our capacities for intimate engagement? Because given how literally everything across society, as you've learned, affects our capacities for attention from food to nutrition, sleep and rest, our day-to-day lives, the context that we're in, the communities we engage with, to even exposure to environmental toxins and the health of our environment, every measurement by nature is reductive. But I feel like our capacities for attention feels a lot more holistic and indicative of our actual well-being and quality of life compared to economic productivity. So what final remarks would you add there? (laughs) And what tips do you have for our listeners so we can begin to translate this conversation into things that we can do in our own lives? Oh, I love that. I love the idea of replacing GDP with like ADP, attentional, you know, domestic product (laughs) or something. Product wouldn't be the right way of thinking about it. But yeah. Oh, I love that. That's such a clever, I hadn't thought of it that way. So I I would urge people to think about a precedent in our history. So it used to be normal. I remember it when I was a kid. The standard form of gasoline in the United States was leaded gasoline. And a bit before my time, people used to paint their homes with leaded paint. And it was known going right back to ancient Rome that exposure to lead is really bad for you. In the 1920s, an amazing scientist named Dr. Alice Hamilton warned that leaded gasoline was going to lead to a public health disaster. But the lead industry funded a kind of bullshit denialist pseudoscience to claim this wasn't happening. But by the 70s, the evidence was overwhelming and undeniable, even by the lead industry, that exposure to lead was really bad for people's brains and particularly bad for children's ability to focus and pay attention. And we were all breathing it in because it was in the air because of the gasoline. 
So a group of ordinary moms banded together and they said, why are we doing this? Why are we allowing this, right? Why are we allowing a for-profit company to raid our children's attention and focus? And it's important to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say ban all paint. They didn't say ban all gasoline. They said ban the specific element that is causing harm to our children's brains in the paint and in the gasoline. And they succeeded. They fought for years. There is no leaded gasoline in the United States now. There's no leaded paint in the United States now. Uh, it was in the Build Back Better proposal to get rid of all the lead pipes that still exist in the country. But you all can thank Joe Manchin for the fact that that's taken out. So we are still exposed to some lead, but it's dramatically less. And as a result, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, has calculated the average American child now is three to five point IQ points higher, has three to five IQ points more than they would have done had we not banned lead. So that to me is a great model. We identify a pathogen in the environment that is damaging attention. We band together and we just get it out of the environment, right? So obviously I'm going through in, in stolen focus, 12 pathogens in the environment. We can get rid of them. We don't have to accept this. As Dr. James Williams, who we started by talking about, said to me, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? For loads of these 12 factors, we can deal with this stuff, but, but we can only get it if we transform our consciousness, understand how it's damaging our attention, these 12 factors are, and, and deal with them. What has been the most impactful book that you've read or a publication you follow? Oh God, Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman. I don't think anyone who reads that book could, you read that book and it gives you a completely transformed prism through which to understand the world and particularly the media that is our frame for the world. What is a motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? My grandmother always taught me, my Scottish grandmother, never let anyone think they're worth more than you and never let anyone think they're worth less than you. And I, I, it's, that's a high bar, but I try to live by that. Mm. And what is your biggest source of inspiration right now? My friends, Paul Votrino and Rob Banghart. Paul and Rob lived in the tunnels beneath Vegas for years, seven years. And they now run a charity called Shine a Light, who go into the tunnels all the time, help the people who are still living there, get them out, get them help solve their problems. Uh, I think Rob and Paul are two of the most incredible people I've ever met. And mm. uh, yeah, them. And I will be plugging your website and your books here. And then the last thing to close off is what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Don't tolerate the invasion of your attention. We don't have to tolerate this. It's intolerable. We don't have to permit it. There is an alternative. We can get to the alternative. We can achieve this. We can put it right. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. 
To help us sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can practice reciprocity by contributing a gift of support of any amount at greendreamer.com/support. We are also grateful for our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. Without a media network behind us, we do rely entirely on word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive archive of conversations can inspire more people. So, if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends and loved ones, or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so so much as well. The song featured in this episode is "Debt" by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 